Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with me, I'm Bill Arnold. Come and learn. That's what we're going to do this hour with Dr. Mark Muska. Ask the Professor is underway. All we need is your questions, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Mark has uh, been here at the University of Northwestern teaching for over 30 years. Something like that. Yeah. I can't count that. i got to take my shoes off and... <laughs> anyway, toes twice. Mar- Mark, nice to see you. Yeah. All right. I want to start with something out of Ephesians chapter 6, okay. verses 10 and 11. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on mm-hmm. the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Let's talk about the full armor of God. Put it. Put on the full armor of God. Mm-hmm. How does one do that? And does it go on every day? Is it go on once and that's it for life? How does that work? Mm-hmm. It sounds like a, it's a, a continual thing that we are uh, being strong and standing against the powers of darkness, he says in here. And so we take our stand against it and take up this armor. It's metaphorical. He's using these different uh, pieces of armor mm-hmm. to describe the way that we uh, both protect ourselves from the what he says are the rulers, powers, world forces of this darkness, the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, talking about demonic powers. And so there are ways we can defend ourselves. God's word plays a big part of this. And so he says that uh, we shed our, uh, or we wear the gospel of peace that's on our feet. We take it with us and the shield of faith Dependence in the Lord shields us. It helps to protect us. So it's a, it's a wonderful set of metaphors. Mm-hmm. I've, I've heard a preacher preach on every one of those things that Paul lists there for a some whole Sunday and oh, wow. you know, go several weeks just cool. expanding on that. But it's, it's, a, it's a helpful metaphor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, here's an Old Testament question. Uh, okay. Who is the author of Job? And is there any genealogy attached to Job? Yeah, we don't know. Uh, the author of Job, could have been Job himself, Mm -hmm. but uh, it's very old. Uh, There's uh, no genealogy that I know of in the Old Testament that includes Job, and I might be missing something there, but uh, it's most likely very old. Uh, It's uh, uh, scholars will date this during the times of Genesis, perhaps, or... uh, it can't be before Genesis because Genesis starts with, you know, the beginning, mm-hmm. but uh, a very old. The language is distinctive. Uh, there's a term that scholars like to use for the language of the Bible, and it's, it sounds real impressive. It's called a hapax legomena, and that's a word that is only used once in the Bible. So you only see once this Hebrew word in the Old Testament or this Greek word in the New Testament. And it can be wickedly difficult to interpret it because linguists will tell you we know the meaning of words by the way they're used. And so if it's only used once in the Scripture, it's tough. 
So there are dozens of hapex legomenas in Job. In Mm -hmm. fact, I read one scholar who was saying it might not even be Hebrew. It might be another derivative of Hebrew that this this is written in. So there's a lot of questions that you're left with. The big question interpreters get into is, is this just one big uh, newfangled uh, metaphor and story, fictional story, or did these people actually live and that, uh, that uh, again, you can get into a real good, robust discussion mm-hmm. about that. That's really interesting. Yeah. So yeah. the message of the book is terrific. And so I like to concentrate on that and then uh, leave it to God as far as uh, uh, answering a lot of those questions yeah. about the dating and the writing and the background. And mm-hmm. So. All right, Mark, uh, Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. If you have a question, let me know what it is, 877-933-2484. It's Ask the Professor Hour. We need your questions. Here's a question, uh, 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven. What does it mean that God chooses the foolish to confound the wise? Yeah, that's a, just a great passage. Paul is making a case here in 1 Corinthians 1. Uh, first of all, that the Corinthians knock it off with their factions and their different parties and all the interfighting among them about being followers of Paul or of Peter or of Apollos, and then the really spiritual ones, well, we follow Jesus, Hmm. he has in there. But uh, he's trying to make a case to say that uh, he's been sent to preach the gospel, uh, not to baptize, not in cleverness of speech, but so that the cross of Christ would be exalted. And that's what he gets into starting in verse 18. He says, The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us are being saved. It is the power of God. And that's true today, just as much as it was 1900 years ago. Mm -hmm. Many mockers talking about, oh, you Christians are just so dependent on all this. You can't live your life yourself. You can't stand up for yourself. And I raise my hand and say, amen to that. I'll agree with that every day and twice on Sunday, (laughs) Mm -hmm. that without the power of God. But for those of us who know the Lord and understand the place of the cross in our lives as the means of our salvation. You know, we're getting all worked up about that. In about a month here, we're going to celebrate it again Mm -hmm. with Good Friday and Easter Sunday. It is the power of God. But then Paul gets into a whole bunch of contrasts where he talks about wisdom and foolishness. Uh, Everybody thinks he's got to be clever. And he says, "Uh uh-uh, this is not clever. This is straightforward. The power of the cross is the power of God, and it's the means by which we're saved. And he Mm -hmm. talks about the weak and the strong. I'm just going to read some verses. It's better than what I'm saying. Please do. He says here, it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. God is saying that. And then Paul says, where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And boy, oh boy, 2022, amen to that as well. Uh, All these big shot know-it-alls think they know so much and they really sound silly sometimes. But he then goes into this, since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. And this is the verse, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jew and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And there he goes. You mm-hmm. know, what power there in those words. I'll, I'll stand with Paul any day of the week with what he says there. Yeah, that's great. So speaking of Job, I just was reminded of a conversation I had a, a while ago about somebody saying, well, this is a person who may not be in a re- relationship with Christ yet, kicking the tires of Christianity and saying, why would God be toying and turning this into a situation where he's going to allow Job's health and family and wealth to be wiped out? What kind of, yeah. what's going on there? Yeah, that, that uh, God has his purposes, and a little bit of that is revealed in the first couple chapters of Job, where he gets into this discussion with Satan about Job and the fact that he is uh, a man who loves God and is uh, faithful to him, and so he takes him through these tests. So uh, God has the the ability and the right to do with us as he pleases, and from a human perspective, it, it looks really harsh. Mm-hmm. And uh, and yet, uh, God is uh, his play, his plans. The counsels of God are so far over our heads that uh, we just better be careful when we start judging God's fairness or His goodness according to our understanding of fairness and goodness. I don't know about you. I start hearing thunder overhead when I <laughs> when I talk like that. Uh, this we are so far out of our league. I like to use the illustration of parents with kids that you've got a, you know, a five-year-old kid that says, Dad, you're mean, or Dad, you're wrong. You know, and if, you're, if he says you're mean, you say, oh, yeah, I know it. But, you know, you just do what I tell you to do. Eat your vegetables. I don't want to eat my vegetables. Well, they're good for you. The nutrition, you get into all things. That five-year-old doesn't understand any of that. Mm-hmm. But you do. And so he does eat his vegetables, if you've got anything to say about it. He does go to bed at a decent hour. So that he's rested and able to function the next day. He doesn't go and play out in the street because it's dangerous. That five-year-old doesn't understand any of that. But so what? <laughs> the, hopefully the parent and the counsels of the parent and their thinking is so far h- above that five-year-old. Well, multiply that out by how many times mm-hmm. with God. Isaiah 55 again, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so far are my thoughts above your thoughts. So mm-hmm. let's just kind of back away from I that. I like that. I like so. that. Dr. Mark Musk is my guest. Ask the professor, of which he is one, 877-933-2484. Send the questions over. Send them via text. Or if you want to email me, you can do it at bill at myfaithradio.com. music and you said to me this music always seems to come pop up when i come on the show it's just a funny coincidence that's because it's your walk-up music yeah i like that song it's a beautiful song it is yeah and it's even biblical i love it 
All right, here's a question. Uh, the Old Testament outlines the law, and the New Testament is salvation through the blood. Did believers mm-hmm. in God go to heaven before Jesus died on the cross? Yeah, that's a really good question, because uh, especially in the book of Hebrews, the writer makes it clear in Hebrews chapter 10 that the only effective sacrifice that's ever been made for sin was Jesus on the cross. Uh, He goes so far as to say the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. Think of the shock of those Jews for all those centuries offering all those sacrificing thinking that that was atoning or that was forgiving their sin. And so uh, the the way I approach this, Bill, is to say that, yes, the one sacrifice that was that was effective was Jesus. But before that, these people brought their animals to the temple and they believed it. They depended on it that when uh, the law prescribes this, before the animal was killed, the person offering the animal would put their hand on the animal's head in a symbolic transfer of guilt from their guilt to from them to the animal. And then the animal was slain. And that person had to do that by faith. They had to depend on God's word that that transfer took place. And so they offered that animal, and as far as we can tell, they walked out of the tabernacle that day or the temple that day with peace of mind Mm -hmm. that this had been taken care of. And so the only way I've been able to make sense out of this, Bill, is that in the counsels of God again, as he sees that animal sacrificed, he's timeless, so he also sees Christ on the cross. And so he knows that this person is living by faith like everybody has to. It doesn't matter when you lived. The things you're believing or depending on might be different, but it's still the trust in God that this was effective. So God sees that animal sacrificed, and he sees Jesus on the cross at the same time, and that is effective, that person. So then we get into do they go to heaven or not? I don't know if I can pin that down from the scriptures. They do go to the place of the dead, mm-hmm. but they are not in torment. This is a place of comfort, at least if the parable of the rich man and Lazarus has any truth to it at all, any mm-hmm. reality to it. So uh, I don't like to get too um, definitive, though, about that, uh, that uh, those who died in faith, we have every reason to think that they were in the presence of God uh, even before the cross, because that was that was the one for all. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that, Mark Mosca. Here's another one. We don't know why Daniel was not one that was thrown into the fiery furnace, but three were cast in. A fourth person appeared. Is this likely our Lord Jesus Christ? There's two questions there. Okay. Um, the first one is the, the, that uh, Daniel didn't get thrown in the... Uh, uh, the fiery furnace, uh, the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or you can use their Hebrew names too, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and they were tossed in there. And then, as the text says, they were astonished, those on the outside, that walking around among them was a fourth, and he's described as a son of God. And so that easily then could connect with a pre-Bethlehem manifestation of the second person of the Trinity, that he is there in that furnace with those three men. Uh, In the Old Testament, there's an argument that goes on, too, about this figure that's called the angel of the Lord or the angel of Yahweh with the article there, not an angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord. When he appears, it looks like it's what we call 
a theophany, mm -hmm. where this is a manifestation of God in a way we can perceive him, we can see him, hear him, uh, whatever. And when you look up the passages in the Bible that talk about this angel of Yahweh, he doesn't sound like any kind of messenger. He sounds like God himself. Mm -hmm. And so he um, appears to Sarah's handmaid uh, in Genesis 16. He appears in Judges 2 after they've come into the land. There's several places in the Old Testament. So this easily could be a theophany of the second person of the Trinity there in the furnace with those three. Now, the other question, where was Daniel? Easy answer, I don't know. Yeah. Nobody knows. He's not mentioned in the chapter. Remember, though, he has been exalted in Babylon because of what's happened already, where he was able to interpret uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream, uh, in fact, tell him his dream, and then interpret it for him. Clearly, he had a connection with the gods. He was, he was a, uh, from Nebuchadnezzar's point of view. So he had considerable power an influence in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, which was vast. My best guess is, I can't prove it, I wouldn't die for it. My best guess is he's off somewhere in the kingdom doing something else while mm -hmm. this is going on. So there's no way he would have bowed down to that image when they played the music. Not a chance yeah. that Daniel would have done that. But where he was, you, you pay your money, you take your choice. I don't know. Yeah. Mark, if the answer is ever, I don't know, just point to me and say, Bill, you can answer that one. Well, you, then know, I'll say, I don't you know, know more than you're get letting on. And I'll just say this publicly to this listening audience. This guy is plenty sharp over here. He may play like he's, oh, Mr. I don't know, but you, yeah. you know plenty. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Here's a question. When John the Baptist started baptizing people, was this the first time baptism was a thing? Did yeah, people you know, understand what he was doing? I don't know. I haven't studied baptism enough to know the precedent behind this. I suspect there were other ways of baptizing and meet reasons for baptizing, but I just, I really don't feel confident to comment on that because I don't okay. know enough about the history of this. Mm -hmm. I'm almost sure this wasn't some new, unique thing where everybody's going, why is he dunking those people in the water? Or if you're a Lutheran, you know, why is he pouring that water over their head? Uh, that that might be the first time that this has happened, but probably not. Mm -hmm. What did baptism uh, symbolize to them before Jesus's death and resurrection? Yeah, well, that you're going to get into a great discussion and or argument with yeah, yeah. various people in the church. Mm -hmm. uh, everybody's got their ideas about the means of baptism, whether you dunk people, right. whether you dip them and don't completely submerge them, or whether you pour water over their head. In the case of babies, sprinkle a little water on their forehead. Uh, that Nobody can agree on that. But then also the, the significance of it as well. There is a strong faction in the church that's been around a long time that sees this, what they call it as baptismal regeneration. If you've heard that word, regeneration means born again, mm -hmm. that that person, when they are baptized, the Holy Spirit actually takes up residence in their body from that moment on, and they are a spirit-indwelt follower of Christ. And where this gets real provocative, uh, don't get so emotional, Bill, you're throwing your, your head around there. Uh, but, and you, I, was, I was impressed. I wish we had TV at this moment. But uh, anyway, uh, this gets real controversial when you start talking about babies getting baptized and mm -hmm. the Holy Spirit coming upon them as an infant, something like that. So that's a, that's a big deal. Another way, if you don't mind a, you mind a survey of this uh, teaching, uh, another tradition in the church sees baptism very similar to what circumcision was for boys in Israel in the Old Testament. It didn't, this Holy Spirit didn't take up residence in the person baptized, but this was a way to, to uh, invite them into the believing community. 
so that they would be raised in the things of the Lord, they would be protected from outside, blah, blah, blah. This, this is very similar to what circumcision was in the Old Testament. And then there's what's called believer's baptism, and this is where uh, you first put your faith in the gospel, and then you get baptized. Mm-hmm. And that's where the significance, I think, I, I, I hold to that third view, and I, I respect others who disagree with me, but I, don't, I think they're wrong. But uh, in that view... The, the the importance of water baptism is this is an act of identification that you are identifying yourself publicly as a Christian and that what goes with that is the responsibility of a Christian then both to the church and to the world around the church that you can hold me to Christian standards of morals and ethics. Uh, I wish that we could get baptisms published in the newspaper, the St. Paul, Minneapolis newspaper in this area, so that people would say, this person's bat they identify as a Christian, and so I can expect Christian behavior out of them. It's a it's a it's an accountability that comes with that as well. And for us in this country as well, uh, sometimes we don't understand the importance of that. But if you go to various places around the world, there's, I can name you half a dozen right now, where being baptized with water is almost a more serious decision that that person makes than to put their faith in the gospel in the first place, because this is when it goes public. And so in some of these civilizations around the world, uh, you may, your family may cut you off. Uh, you may lose your job. You may be persecuted, and even you may lose your life if you get baptized. It's a much more serious decision because it makes it public at that point that you're a Christian. So uh, I think we have to give that you know due recognition. But anyway, it's a it's a means of identifying yourself with Christ that mm-hmm. you are now you belong to Him, and you're telling the world that. Mm-hmm. Who wrote the uh, the Book of Psalms? A lot of people. Yeah. Uh, David is ascribed about half of them, mm-hmm. although that gets a little uh, iffy with some of the Psalms because they have a heading on them that literally says, uh, of David or according to David. And so that might be something that he wrote, but it might have been written in honor of him mm-hmm. as well by somebody else. But there's plenty of other yeah. people. Psalm 90 was written by Moses. Mm. And so that one made it into the, the book of Psalms as well. Asaph and Heman yep. and and uh, a couple others. Uh, Solomon wrote a couple of the Psalms. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like to say that the Psalms is like a hymn book used to be in the church, where it's a compilation of worship to prompt us and to lead us in worshiping in various settings. So there's praise Psalms, there's lament Psalms, there's royal Psalms that talk about the king and his life, and uh, it's very fun to be able to study all 150 Mm -hmm. of them. We'll take a break, and when we come back, lots more of your questions. Send them over, 877-933-2484. One more time, 877-933-2484. If you like email, you can send it to bill at myfaithradio.com. Be right back with Dr. Mark Mosco. It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno, Brad Tom, Joe, and 
So glad to have Dr. Mark Muska here in studio. We call this segment Ask the Professor, of which he is one. And he's here right at the University of Northwestern. And any question you have, he will do his very best to answer at 877-933-2484. Here a couple of questions, Mark. I hear people say God has your life already planned out from the day you're born and even knows the day you're going to die. What are your thoughts on this? Yes. Okay. I don't know about having it all planned out. And he, he does know every detail of it. Uh, this is a teaching that we talk about God's attributes, that he is omniscient. And if you have trouble spelling that, it's like omni and then science. Mm-hmm. Omniscient means he's all-knowing. That's been challenged in the last few years by some in the church, whether God knows the future or not. But I, I disagree respectfully with their teaching that he, he knows it all past, present, and future. So he does know that. Now, how much does he plan have planned out for you? That's a little trickier because it's, it leads to Christians taking the attitude that if I want to please God with my life, I better find out what that plan is so that I can do what God wants me to do. Uh, students, I talk to them all the time about this. You know, did God lead you to Northwestern College? Is this God's will? Are you sure this is in God's plan for your life? And they get into a big thing about trying to discover that. And uh, I, I, I think there's more to it, Bill. Uh, so few people ever get that type of leading definitively about mm-hmm. decisions that they have to make in their lives. Sure, you can look at Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 1, and God says, before you were born, I appointed you to be a prophet. And the same thing with Saul, that Saul of Tarsus, he was called by God to be an apostle to the Gentiles. So he does have a plan for some people's lives. But every one Jeremiah, hundreds of thousands of followers never got that kind of leading from Mm -hmm. God. And so I subscribe to, yes, ask God to lead you if it pleases you. You might be a Jeremiah, but also if he doesn't, you have to make wise decisions with your life that are within God's will in the sense that it's what the Bible teaches, but you don't have to go into it thinking there's only one choice I can make and be right here, that there's many choices you could make and some of them are better choices than others, but it's not like you sinned or that you're out of God's will if you didn't do this one thing that he chose for you to do. You get what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. That just, that to me is a dead end. It's it's very difficult. People uh, really second guess God in their own relationship with God when they start from that premise that there's only one thing. Uh, You want to know the real corker for that when these students start talking about marriage? You know, Northwestern, it's like a lot of Christian college. There's a lot of talk about engagement and marriage here. Yeah, it's amazing how that happens. Uh, But, uh, you know, who who does God want me to marry? Uh, First question is, does God want you to get married? But if he does, then you got the whole question. And, you know, who do I marry? And, well, if there's one out there, you better beat the bushes and find that person. And so within God's will, it's that you, if you are a follower of Christ, you marry another follower of Christ. So you eliminate a lot of the world that way. And then also, and I know people might not like this, I might get in trouble for it, but the Bible makes it clear that if you're a woman, you're supposed to marry a man. And if you're a man, you're supposed to marry a woman. 
And so that helps to narrow that down a little bit. But then you've got all kinds of possibilities there, and you should make the best or the wisest choice you can. But it's not like you're going to get it wrong and you're in sin or you're out of the will of God if you marry Susie over here and it should have been Beth mm-hmm. that you married. To me, that's a that's a loser's game. It's mm-hmm. it's too. I don't know if I could live that way. Mm-hmm. So, but there's been some real good stuff written about this. Uh, one of the classic books on there is a theology professor out in uh, Portland by the name of uh, Gary Friesen. He wrote a book back 40 years ago called decision-making in the will of God, where he gets into this thing about making decisions and making wise decisions. Our own Doug Huffman, who was here at Northwestern for years, now he teaches out at Biola University, uh, he wrote a book on uh, three views on God's will, where he gets into all these questions too. So there's some good resources out there to help Mm -hmm. people. Yeah. And getting back to this planning out your life, and this is a a Mm -hmm. question that we have someone a little bit stuck on, so if God did plan out your life or had full knowledge of everything that you were going to do, it seems that he would be uh, allowing, if he was allowing people to become, you know, killers and rapists and all that, uh, why would he do that? Because he is sovereign and he has his purposes. And one of the things he has chosen to do is to allow us to have a measure of self-determination in our lives too, where we can resist his will for us that's revealed in the Bible. So you're not supposed to go out murdering people. It's one of the Ten Commandments, but people can resist that and kill people. And to say that God, you know, ordained or caused him to kill that person is foolish, foolishness. They chose to do that. But at the same time, it's all in God's plans and purposes for the world overall. So it's not like we can thwart God's purposes, but we certainly can't blame God for the wickedness in the world. Mm-hmm. And another question came in, why did God let Jews in, endure the Holocaust? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's a brutal question, isn't it? It is brutal. Yeah. You know. how, do you, uh, how do you justify that and say, well, this is part of God's plans and purposes? I think it was part of God's plans and purposes, but you've got to be very careful saying that. Mm-hmm because of so much suffering. And again, is it, what is this, the fourth time today I've said this? God's counsels are above ours, and he- heaven help us if we start to think we can uh, put God to trial on mm-hmm. the things he decides to do. A lot of people are thinking that right now with what's going on in Eastern Europe and the devastation and horrible things taking place. You know, has God, has he deserted them? Is he off on vacation or something? Mm-hmm. No. Uh, we may not be able to figure it out, but God is actively involved in everything in mm-hmm. the world. So, Another question about what do you think about the war and how it fits into end times? Could Putin be Gog, G-O-G? I don't know. That's that, that's a little different twist on it. The answer is I don't know. Let me answer it. Yeah. Uh, Bill, what's the answer to this? I don't know. Okay, there we go. Thank you very much. Uh, but we can't be sure. Uh, the other one I've, I've heard is is Putin the Antichrist. And uh, this gets kicked around whenever we get these tyrants around uh, mm-hmm. the world. The other Russian that was talked about being the Antichrist was Gorby himself, Gorbachev. Yeah, I remember that. Because, well, he had this huge birthmark on his head, and it looked like what Revelation talks about, this Antichrist having had a mortal wound, but yet he was... He was uh, still alive, and so everybody got worked up about that. Uh, I don't 
hold to the idea of trying to identify specific people, events, and situations to what biblical prophecy is saying. On the one hand, we're supposed to read prophecy and to have our eyes and ears open and be prepared for the coming of the Lord. But this thing about dating the return of Christ or pegging this is that in the Scripture, it just, it there's no way to prove it and there's no way to refute it. You're just kind of left there. And so uh, I like to talk a lot about what it means to be ready for Christ's return or to be watchful and looking, but I don't think that includes trying to figure out who and what and all these events that are going on. That's a much different thing that Jesus calls us to do. Mm -hmm. Mark, have you uh, gone through the material Experiencing God by Henry Blackaby? I never went through it. I've read through it a bit, but uh, it's been enormously popular. I don't know if it is anymore. It was more of a 20th century phenomenon. So in the last uh, couple uh, decades, I'm not not sure. But yes, uh, this has been something that really has ministered uh, to uh, Christians uh, through the years. So I'm f- somewhat familiar with it, not not uh, in uh, very great detail. First mm-hmm. Corinthians 6, 3, what does it mean that we will judge angels? Uh, I, I think, Bill, that it means... Would you like me to answer that? Yeah. I don't know. No, no, you oh, should <laughs> No, you know, we're going to judge angels. I don't know how that works. Yeah. But that's exactly what Paul says. He's reprimanding them because they're suing one another and going to secular courts to settle their arguments within the church. And he mm-hmm. says, no, yeah, don't do that. you you got to realize you're going to judge angels someday. I think Paul might have even said that with a little smirk on his face mm-hmm. just to get their attention. Can't you just hear him going, what about lawsuits? Angels? <laughs> and we're going to judge angels, you know, to distract them a little bit? I'm, I'm not sure, but that, that might be possible. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we're going to judge angels. Don't yeah. tell me how, but it's going to happen. Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verse 14, Mark, it says, um, talks about Jesus is our peace. What does it mean that Jesus himself is our peace? You know, I think it's the, he's the representative. He is the, he is the poster boy, if okay. you want to call it that, for peace. You want to find peace, you look to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the author of it. He sustains it. I love what he says in John 16, where he says, In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Mm-hmm. He is the source of peace. Proverbs 3.7 uh, tells us not to be wise in our own eyes. Yeah, great verse. Yeah, talk about that one. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Yeah. Don't, don't think you got it all figured out. Okay. <laughs> everybody, it's that easy, huh? Well, everybody loves to memorize Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Yeah. You know, Trust in the Lord with all, all your heart. heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. Mm-hmm. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and it will make your path straight. Read verse 7. Do not be wise in your own eyes. I kind of browbeat the students about this the first day of class to say, are you wise in your own eyes? Do you think you got it all figured out? Mm-hmm. I don't want to insult middle schoolers, but I think middle schoolers may be as smart as they're ever going to be in their own eyes, and you end up getting dumber the rest of your life because a kid that age, you know, just seems like, oh, mom, dad, you know, I got this figured out. Don't don't worry about this. And then you realize how much you don't know. Uh, the older I get, the more I realize I don't know. So uh, this wise in your own eyes, the opposite of that, Bill, in my opinion, is to be someone with an open teachable attitude, and you're ready to learn from anybody and anything. 
that it doesn't matter if they're above or below you in their status in life. You keep your eyes and ears open, you can learn an awful lot from the world around you. I learn a lot from birds. I learn from spiders. Mm. Uh, Proverbs talks about learn from the ant, you slugger, how it labors, and yeah. you, you, should, you shouldn't be lazy. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. What I learned from spiders is you shouldn't be in my bathroom at 2 in the morning. Well, and that's going to cost you your life. Get a little holler, <laughs> huh? Yeah. Is that wrong that I said that? Or am I some kind of killer? Yeah. The, the animal rights people are going to come for you now <laughs> on behalf of spiders. So. I mean, it's sitting there on a white wall. Does it think it's hiding from me? Come no. on. Crawl into a corner. What? I do. I don't know. By the way, I do love animal rights people. I think they're some of the most wonderful people in the world. I don't always agree with everything they stand yeah. for, but I, boy, I, I agree. They, the animals, who's going to speak for them, you know, if, know. if, if we don't have people that stand yeah. up for them? Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. We call this Ask the Professor, and all you have to do is send your question over, and I will ask it on your behalf. 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. You can also email me, bill at myfaithradio.com, if you like email better. Be right back. Dr. Mark Muska, Ask the Professor. That is the name of this lovely segment with the Professor Mark Muska. All you have to do is ask any questions you like, 877-933-2484. So, Mark, in Colossians chapter 2, around Mm -hmm. verse 8, we talk about human tradition following elemental spirits of the world. Do you have any insights into into the meaning of the elemental spirits of the world? My version says elementary principles or concepts of the world. But uh, if you start at the top of the verse, he says more. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Uh, I have to say that some Christians have used this to denounce philosophy, the study of philosophy, Mm. and I think that's overreacting. What Jesus is saying here is that this is we should be taken captive of Christ and his teachings. And so uh, if we're uh, going with these elementary principles of the world, the way that the world thinks, I don't know, maybe the scientific method belongs in this. If we depend on that alone, uh, we're off. We have to be able to stay with Christ and his teaching. Do we reject all the rest of that? I don't think so. This is a wonderful thing that, uh, especially in the last century or so, Christian philosophers and Christians involved with the natural and social sciences have seen the integration of their disciplines with the authority of the Scripture. Uh, It's a very serious thing that happens here at Northwestern, and I know in most Christian colleges out there where they realize that God reveals things through the world around us called natural revelation. So we can study things like physics and psychology to understand us as human beings more, psychology, to understand the world and how it works, uh, physics. So that's valid. We can learn a lot by studying those things. But if we 
depend on that only, it may become this elementary principles, but we also study the scriptures and we bring those two together the best we can. It's not easy sometimes. You get into the huge, humongous question about origins, and here we go to talk about biology, paleontology, geology, and all that versus what the scriptures tells us about the origins of the universe, and that's a real challenge. But I'm, I'm real proud of a couple of our biology professors, especially at Northwestern. They've jumped into that with both feet, and they're doing a great job to bring that together so that we don't, um, we don't reject either one of those sources of truth, but we don't prioritize either one of them either. We bring them together to understand things. So. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that, Mark. Uh, here's another question. Can you explain why God was going to kill Moses, but his wife stepped in? Yeah, that is really an interesting passage. Uh, the context of it there is that Moses has been called to go to Egypt. Now, God has commissioned him to go, but they're about to embark to go, and uh, th- that God is evidently sent uh, an angel to slay Moses. Uh, part of that as well is is that his sons aren't circumcised, and that is important because that's a sign that they're living under the covenant with Abraham that God made to make Israel his people. And that has something to do with this, but I don't know if I can get into too much detail about it. It's one of the most maddening things about Scripture when you're serious about trying to figure out what it's saying. It just doesn't tell you enough sometimes. And so (laughs) I joke around with my students sometimes. You read a passage like that and you're going, wait, 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 Moses, time out here. (laughs) Just a minute. Don't you just go on and start telling them more about the story. Go back there and explain yourself with what's happening there. Uh, that happens a lot. The book of Genesis is full of those kind of things. There's huge gaps in our knowledge and understanding of what's going on in Genesis. Mm-hmm. How do we make sense out of it? And in God's purposes, he said, not important enough for me to include, and I don't want you distracted with some of that. I want you to think about what I do right here and uh, take that into consideration. So I just, I'm not, well, Bill, you know, what's the answer to this question? I don't know. Yeah, oh, There we go. That we Thank just you. we just don't know exactly what was going on. Yeah. Seriously, I'm crushing it with That's some of the That's about your fifth really good I answer. Know, yeah. I know. Mm-hmm. Don't you got to keep coming to this show because if if it's just me, it's going to be tough. Yeah, because you're very very helpful on this show. Yeah, you're helpful. Sure, too, I though. answer some good questions. Yep. Mm-hmm. But I don't think I can do it without you, Mark. Mm, I don't know. All right, whatever your task, work heartily as serving the Lord and not men. Colossians mm-hmm. uh, three twenty three. Yeah. How many develop that mindset when they go to work every day? I don't know. Uh, it's uh, People like to write it off because he's addressing that to slaves. And so it's like, well, I'm not a slave. And <laughs> so, uh, but then I can come back and you say, oh, really? So you can just leave this job anytime you want, huh? And you're going to be doing just fine. So it might not technically be slavery where you've got bonds on and everything, but uh, we have uh, a lot of responsibility sometimes. So uh, these... Uh, employers have some some uh, pull with us. But uh, this, to me, is uh, an attitude where you say everything that you do, you do it with an attitude as a servant of Christ. So you may be employed by Honeywell or 3M, but first and foremost, you are a servant of Christ. So when you do your work, you do it uh, the best you can, as if Christ is your boss. You are a conscientious uh, worker in 
even the most mundane things that you do. Mm-hmm. All right, here's a interesting question, and I've heard this before, okay. and I'm going to give it to you again here, Mark, and it's um, Matthew 18, 18. What is bound and what is loosed? Yeah. Well, let's, let me go back here. Get into it. Jesus is talking about some important uh, things to the disciples here. He's uh, teaching them uh, about uh, the way the kingdom works. And just in the context here, he's uh, he's talking about, uh, first of all, in verse 15 here, of, of restoring someone who has sinned. And it goes through three steps of restoration there. And uh, he says that if someone sins, go talk with them. If they repent, you've won your brother. But if they don't, bring somebody with you as a witness. And if they don't respond to you, you two or you three, then take it to the body. And if they don't respond to the body, then at the end of verse 17, he said, uh, let the person that's unrepentant, let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, outside of the church. And then he making his point in verse 18 to say, truly I say to you, what you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Uh, he's trying to make a point to these apostles. They have significant authority now that Jesus is commissioning them with, and so they have the ability to hold people accountable. Uh, Jesus isn't going to be around forever. He's going to be going back to the Father uh, before they want him to. And so they they are going to have this authority. But with that comes the responsibility to deal with these kind of unrepentant people in the church. And Jesus just wants them to make sure they understand uh, you have the authority for this. This is not some trivial thing mm-hmm. that's going on here. Mm-hmm. Also reminds me of John twenty twenty one through 23, where Jesus says, if you forgive anyone, his sins, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Yeah. And now I'm not sure if that's true for the church as large, but it seems as though that's going out to the apostles here. And it's speaking of this authority that they have to preach the gospel. And in particular, uh, it appears as though Jesus is speaking about their response to the message that's proclaimed. If they respond by putting their faith in Jesus to forgive their sins, they will be forgiven. And the apostles had the authority to declare that. And if they refuse the gospel, the gospel, the apostles have the authority to say that they are in serious trouble, that they are rejecting this. Uh, uh, some church traditions have taken this very literally, even yet today, among the priesthood or the pastors in the churches. I'm thinking about the Roman Catholic Church, the Anglican Church, and the Lutheran Church, that uh, pastors and priests will speak with this kind of authority at times. Uh, They consider this to be passed down to them, even Mm -hmm. yet today, to be able to withhold uh, forgiveness from people or to grant it to them. Uh, This is a big part of the uh, sacrament of confession that Roman Catholics practice, Mm -hmm. that that priest has been authorized by Christ that the church teaches uh, to be able to either retain sins or to declare their forgiveness. Mm. Mark, how important to you personally is morning prayer? It's really important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I mean, does it really set the the tone for your day? It can. Mm Mm-hmm. If you're not quite awake, it can be less than uh, 
effective. Yeah. It's the same thing at night. Evening prayers are great too, but a lot of people get in bed and start praying <laughs> and it's over. You know, yeah. that, that although that's not the worst thing in the world either, is to have the lots of thoughts uh, consciously that day that's be pretty nice too. the Lord. You know, yeah. To be able to think about him. Some families, in fact, they have a fun tradition where they call it the last words are the Lord's words at the end of the night when they are putting their kids to bed. And I think that's kind of a neat idea. So a morning prayer, it's its a very helpful way to set your, the momentum of your day. I am going to stop, though, but Bill, and say, but it's not like you're a lesser of a Christian if you don't practice that. Mm-hmm. Or if it's only maybe five days out of seven in the week, or maybe two days, or maybe even one day out of the week. A lot of people get this whole list of things that they've got to be doing in order to be a legitimate Christian. I get it, yeah. And that can go bad in a hurry when we start making those kinds of rules and lists like that. So uh, in general, I would agree with that idea, but don't make it some manacle around your neck mm-hmm. where you're you're feeling like you're a, a failure as a Christian mm-hmm. if you missed a day or yeah. missed some days. Thank you for being here, Mark. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun. Hour's up. Wow. Yeah. Fastest hour in my life. I agree. That's all the show we have for today. Thank you so much for spending time with me today. I've loved being with you. And I hope if you missed any of the show, Mark had a brilliant hour with a lot of great questions, a lot of great answers. You can always head to MyFaithRadio.com. We've got a great podcast. You can listen to it and send it to a friend. You can share it that way. That can start a discussion about faith. Take advantage of that. Have a great night, everyone. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.